Welcome to That Anthro Podcast, the podcast dedicated to anthropology. Together, each week, we will be learning from the experts and researchers that are researching our pasts and today's problems. My name is Gabriella Campbell, and I'll be interviewing a new guest each week to bring to you the latest and greatest in anthropology, based right here out of Santa Barbara. Join me for weekly episodes, whether you're an anthropology buff or looking to learn something new. Welcome to That Anthro Podcast. And now, a word about the sponsor of our podcast, Anchor. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to That Anthro Podcast. Hey, last week, I was complaining to you guys how I feel like I haven't been engaging well on the Instagram. And guess what? Like, a ton of new people followed the Anthro Podcast Instagram. So if you want to join the Instagram family, it's at That Anthro Podcast on Instagram. Thank you to everyone who has followed. I've got some fun content. You really just get to see, like, behind the scenes of the guest, my life. You get to see pictures of Daisy. Like, what what more could you want? Um, I'm recording today from at home in Ventura, here for Thanksgiving break. I hope you guys, this episode's coming out the day before Thanksgiving, so I hope you guys all have a nice holiday. I hope you're staying safe. Um, In case anyone's wondering, I did get COVID tested before I came home. (laughs) Um, In case anyone was curious, um, I hope, you know, everyone's doing super amazing. Uh, This episode is so fun with uh, Dr. Torben Rick. We, first of all, found out that he's also from Ventura, and he went to Ventura High School, and I went to Buena High School, and we lived in the same dorm. He's a UCSB alum. It was such a fun episode. Um, You get to hear all about his research on the Channel Islands and his work at the Smithsonian. He's truly, you know, done so much research in the field and was such, is such an expert. So I was really, really happy to have him on today. And, you know, he reflects on some fun memories of living in IV, meeting his wife there. And just in general, we, we uh, have a little, a love session for the UCSB anthropology department. So please enjoy this episode with Dr. Torben Rick. Dr. Rick, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to record with me today. Uh, well, thanks for having me. So currently you're a curator at, um, at the Smithsonian in the North American Archaeology Department, uh, which we'll talk about more later. But back at the beginning of your academic journey, you went to UCSB and you got your BA in anthropology there. So did you have a passion for anthropology or archaeology going into college or did you kind of like discover a love for it? Um, well, thanks. Great question. Yeah, so I, I actually, you know, I knew a little about archaeology and anthropology before I got to UCSB, but it wasn't something that I had ever really aspired to do. Um, you know, like many people, I'd been to museum exhibits and seen things on archaeology and, of course, read about it. And the Indiana Jones movies were very big when I was a kid. But it really wasn't until UC, I got to UCSB that I learned um, what a fantastic discipline it is and really the power of understanding the human past to help us really understand how we got to where we are today. And, and more recently, how, you know, how we can use that record of the past to help us understand where we're headed in the future. Definitely. What is some of your favorite memories from attending UCSB? Um, I have a lot of good memories, both centered around the anthropology department and the community at large. 
with regard to anthropology, I'll just say that I, you know, I found my home in that department. I had come to the university kind of interested in marine biology. I took a lot of the courses leading up to that and really wasn't that interested in it. And then it wasn't until I think my sophomore year, I stumbled into Brian Fagan's introduction to archaeology class. And, you know, Brian, who's been retired for a while now, is a really inspirational guy. He's got this strong British accent, of course, is one of the real champions that's popularized archaeology. And I walked into his class, and if I remember correctly, he only gave one lecture a week. And then the other time we were in, like, these simulations with the TAs, which were great, too. But his lectures were, they were just classic. You know, he's a, he's a wonderful speaker. And I, I remember him saying things like, have you ever slept under a car with lions roaring out, you know, at you as you're in Africa? Or have you ever been to the Colosseum? You can still hear the gladiators roar. And it was really, really neat stuff. And then about um, a year, a year after that, or maybe two quarters after that, um, I took a class called California Archaeology from Mike Glassow. And Mike has uh, been a mentor to me ever since. That class really opened my eyes because it taught me that, um, you know, that there was this great past in California, right, where I grew up that I never even knew was there, literally right underneath my feet. There was this pretty magical story and uh, kind of the rest is history from there. I went on to take every class that I could and really devoured it and had just some great mentors there. And then, you know, outside of the classroom, I, UCSB is where I met my wife. I, you know, That's uh, sweet. had great friends there. Yeah, my wife is a fine arts major at UCSB. We both you know, love the area. I went, you know, uh, spent my freshman year in the dorms. I lived in Santa Rosa. So uh, did I. Oh yeah, nice. Yeah, probably no change. Probably no change in anything since since you lived there. <laughs> probably. Uh, I, I remember I lived right on the edge. You could go out my back door and you'd be right at that place, the Annex. I wonder if that's still there. They used to serve like pizza and stuff late night. Oh yeah, D yeah, DLG. Yeah, now it's De La Guerra Dining Commons. Oh no, we had De La Guerra Dining oh, okay. Commons too. This was like a little small thing. Hmm. I like think that's I think that's gone. Probably. Yeah. And then you know I played in a band and lived in IV and had lots of fun. So it's a great that's spot. Great. I really miss it. Yeah, it's so wonderful. And you know the anthropology department even now with a change of staff is just such a community. Like I feel so lucky and so happy to be in a place where this part of the reason, you know, I decided to go here undergrad was I was a bit scared by some of the universities that were a bit more competitive, you know, different majors not getting along, people not being nice to each other within classes. And I'm just so happy that UCSB is such a collaborative, it's such a collaborative effort and it's such a community, especially the anthropology department. It's just wonderful. Yeah, that's great to hear. Here it's still that way. I mean, I know Greg and Amber and Doug and Sarah all very well, so I wouldn't expect anything less of them. But yeah. certainly when I was there, which is, you know, 20 years ago at this point or more than 20 years ago, um, it was a, a really collaborative place and really wonderful. I, I still have, you know, Mike Glassow was my, my biggest mentor and someone I'm still very close to. But, you know, I had fantastic classes with Kathy Schreiber and Mike Jokum was a really important mentor of mine. And you know, Mike's one of the nicest people out there and, and had, you know, lots of good friends that were students, um, both graduate and undergraduate. It was always, you're right, it was always a very friendly collegial place. Yeah, which is just such a, such a wonderful thing. It, I think it really produces better work and a great, obviously, environment, healthy environment, but um, 
and it's something I'm going to talk about with you later is, you know, collaborative efforts among different fields can really benefit um, anthropology and archaeology as a whole. So um, did you have the opportunity to do any uh, field or lab work while you were at UCSB? I did, yeah. So, so I did a lot of lab work. Uh, my first lab experience was with a graduate student named Ann Munns, and Ann's a archaeologist in the region now and still a good friend too. Um, she works for Applied Earthworks, does a lot of work up in the Vandenberg area and really throughout the Santa Barbara Channel, but she was working on her dissertation when I was there and I got to do some lab work sorting midden and, and learning how to identify bead types and microblades and all sorts of interesting stuff from the Santa Barbara Channel. Um, I did a lot of lab work with Mike Glassow, um, working on, at that time he was working on material from SBA 53, the aerophysics site, which is an old Goleta Slough site. And then um, I worked with Doug Kennett in the lab too, mostly with Doug. He was doing a lot of GIS work at that time, so I volunteered with him on that. I, um, I did two different field schools. One was a field class that Mike Glassow taught. I don't know if they're still doing that, but it used to be a a class where every weekend you'd go into the field and do some excavation. We ended up digging a site up, uh, up in collaboration with the coastal band of the Chumash Nation up on um, western Santa Barbara coast. And then I did a month-long field school through UCLA that was taught by Gene Arnold. Um, the the, the kind of constant theme for me the whole time was Santa Barbara Channel, you know, California coastal archaeology, and I've never kind of been able to escape it since then. Did you visit the Channel Islands throughout your time living there? I did. So, you know, I growing up in Ventura, I was just a stone's throw from them. And so I'd been going to the Channel Islands since I was a kid, um, including a really memorable trip to Catalina Island when I was a fifth grader to a place called the Catalina Island Marine Institute. And then at UCSB, yeah, I took my wife and I actually together, we took um, a Channel Islands class that I think is still offered. Yeah, it is. Be kind of team taught. It was always a really popular class, environmental studies, if yeah. I remember correctly. I've been trying to take it. But <laughs> yeah, it was a hard great, to get into. It was a great class. I, is it Jenny Dugan who teaches it now, or I can't remember? Ooh, I'm not There's sure. There's a guy I'm named Neutral when I took it, and then he had lots of guest lectures. And they did a they did a field trip to Santa Cruz Island, and we did a little hike from Pelican Harbor, uh, from Prisoners Harbor over to Pelican Harbor and back, and. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. It's such a unique ecosystem, too, like that we have just just across the channel. It's so interesting. Yeah. So after you finished up at UCSB, you did your MA and PhD at University of Oregon. So like you were saying, you've, you focused on the, the Channel Islands, but what specifically did you focus your research and dissertation on there? Um, so, yeah, I went up to Eugene uh, for the next seven years after I graduated um, my advisor there was a guy named John Erlinson, who's still a good friend of mine too. And, and John actually got his PhD at, at UCSB. And so there's another UCSB connection there too. Love it. And one of my other mentors there, Madonna Moss, who was on my committee, um, Madonna was also a UCSB PhD. So a lot of UCSB and my connections, even when I went up to, uh, to graduate school in Oregon. I went up to Oregon um, again to follow coastal archaeology. That's what I really wanted to do. And my passion was sort of understanding human use of the ocean through time and um, how that varied around the world, why the ocean was important and different and broad human evolutionary questions. And sort of looking at the interface of the coastal environment and people was something I 
really wanted to pursue in graduate school. And Oregon was kind of the, the perfect place for that because having both John and Madonna there and a couple other people who were working in the Pacific Islands at that time too. And Mel Akins was another mentor of mine who had done some work in Japan and, and Oregon that kind of fit in. And so I went up there thinking that I would leave the Channel Islands in Southern California behind. Um, I had thought about maybe doing some work in Alaska and had been talking to Madonna Moss about that. And, and uh, Madonna, you know, works up in Alaska and that was her primary area. John, my advisor, worked in California, but he had also been doing work in uh, Southeast Alaska and Oregon at that time. And I had a couple opportunities, but I kept getting sucked back into the Channel Islands. Um, and I ultimately ended up doing both my master's and my PhD work focused on the Channel Islands. Uh, my master's work was focused on a site called Daisy Cave, where I analyzed the fish remains. Daisy Cave is one of the oldest sites uh, in California, really anywhere in North America. It's got occupations going back to about 12,000 years ago. It's located on San Miguel Island. And then for my dissertation, I went to the other end of the spectrum and focused on sites that date to the late Holocene or the last 3,000 years up through the historic period. And I was really interested in questions about why the Chumash on the islands and the mainland um, became what we call or practiced what we call um, emergent complexity. And they had these really complex um, social organization and exchange systems. And I was really interested in understanding kind of how that appeared and why. So I did field work focused on Santa Rosa and San Miguel Island related to those questions. And then all the while interfacing ecological issues within that. This is um, something for our listeners that um, the Santa Barbara Natural History Museum has a wonderful exhibit on the Chumash and a lot of, you know, the trading, the, is it, it was ab abalone beads. Am I remembering that correctly? Um, mostly all olivella beads oh, okay, or, yeah. or Kalanax, depending on who you follow for the genus, but also abalone beads. Yeah. They made beads out of a wide variety of things, mm -hmm. California mussels, but olivella were the primary money beads, which you call cup beads. They're little tiny little white beads. Such a such an intricate. I, the, I'm so lucky that I you know did grow up in the Santa Barbara area, so I did have a lot of um, education on the Chumash throughout my schooling. But such such a fascinating, such a fascinating culture, and still today, you know, I I was so since finishing your PhD, you've published immense amounts of archaeological research on the coastal regions and interactions of ancient peoples with coastal and terrestrial land systems. This is included a lot of work on the Santa Barbara Channel Islands. Could you maybe give like, cause I know you, there's obviously a lot of research questions that you've asked and maybe one specific one that we could focus in on and kind of explain to our listeners a bit more about the history of the ancient peoples on the Channel Islands. Sure, I, so I mean, there's a lot of questions I'm interested in. I mean, maybe the most important one or the one I think about the most is, is so, you know, questions related to human environmental interactions. And, and how archaeology can actually help us with conservation biology today. Definitely. Um, so you also collaborate with various experts from other fields like ecology, biology, and geology to help further understand and evaluate the evidence that you present in your research. How do you feel like your interdisciplinary studies can really add to the field of archaeology? That's a good question. So the first, before I get to how I can add to that, I'll say that, you know, my training at UCSB and everything after that really showed me that archaeology is a team sport. You know, it's done with, with good groups of collaborators, with students and faculty members, with, with Native American communities. That's, that's the way to do archaeology. 
Um, and then, you know, as my career evolved, I was really lucky to, to engage with a lot of researchers in different fields, particularly in the biological sciences. And that's, you know, that's one of archaeology's great strengths is we've always, you know, thought of ourselves as being very interdisciplinary. We draw on a lot of disciplines to understand the human past. Um, and so a lot of those collaborations have felt natural to me. And, um, you know, it's been great because I've, I've learned a lot collaborating with biologists um, and I hope they've learned something from me too. And each time we do a collaborative project, I think we're pushing each other to think about things in new and unique ways. And, and uh, I, I'm never surprised about what we can learn from the archeological record. You know, having, particularly I work mostly with fauna remains, archeology span is my primary kind of specialty. And I'm, I'm just never amazed at what we can learn from, from marine mammal bones or fish bones or shellfish remains. And especially as we evolve new techniques and genetics and isotope analyses, we're constantly being able to address new questions, build up new research, and then relate that back to relevancy because that's something else I've really, really kind of been very passionate about is making archeology span relevant. And I think that's one of those things where a lot of people think of archaeology as something that's neat and they love hearing about it and oh my gosh you know this latest work on the maya is really interesting or the aztecs but they struggle to see how that relates to their everyday life or they struggle to see the application of that to contemporary problems and so i've really tried to work hard to show that well actually the past and the archaeological record does have something to tell us about the future and and here's some things within the conservation biology realm that it can do for us yeah, specifically you mentioned it helping us better understand current environmental issues that we're facing in our society today. What are some of the um, ways that you're hoping to apply your your research and spread the message that you know that there is things we can learn from from the past that we can apply today? Right. That, that's so. That's a really good question, and and um, I'd be naive to say if it wasn't difficult because it's very difficult trying to apply you know, the past to modern day issues, especially when we look at just how rapidly our planet's changing, how, how really, you know, pronounced and difficult issues of, of climate change and global warming, species and biodiversity decline, extinction and biodiversity decline, all those things are huge. And so we've zoomed in on a few areas and a couple examples just from the Santa Barbara Channel involve um, pinnipeds, for instance. So pinnipeds are seals and sea lions. And um, the seals, seals and sea lions, along with whales and other marine mammals, were um, basically driven to extinction or near extinction around the world during the global fur and oil trade from the really the 1500s all the way up through the early uh, 1900s. And as we were pursuing oil for oil lamps, you know, before we had uh, electricity and fossil fuels, we had um, we had you know whale oil and things that were powering our our lamps and things in our streets and then on the flip side of that we were using furs from sea otters and pinnipeds and things and so what happened is we had these really huge declines particularly in california some some of the species like the elephant seal was we were thought was extinct up until the early 1900s and so we've used archaeology as a vehicle to understand what some of these populations were like these seal and sea lion populations before this global fur and oil trade that decimated them. If you fast forward to today, a lot of these pinniped populations have recovered. 
Um, they've been true success stories of conservation, where in the 1972, we uh, passed the Marine Mammal Act, and they're protected species now. And so you get things like elephant seals breeding right along Highway 1 up in, up in the San Simeon I've area. I've seen them. <laughs> yeah, and even further to the north, or I've been working at Point Conception lately, and they're even starting to creep in that area. And of course, on the Channel Islands, you know, there's literally tens of thousands of them breeding every year on, on uh, San Miguel Island. Uh, including you know California sea lions, northern fur seals, Guadalupe fur seals. It's been a great conservation success story. But what we've used archaeology to do is fill the gap. You know we have this period of massive decline, then we have this really quick boom in the population, and then the question becomes, well, what's that recovery like? You know, is that returning to some sort of natural state, some sort of pre, you know, near extinction state? And so we've used archaeological uh, pinniped remains from a 10,000 year sequence of the Channel Islands to show some pretty interesting patterns that actually the recovery seems a little bit different. You know, we, we know that today elephant seals and California sea lions are extremely common. Um, and then we don't have very many Guadalupe fur seals today, but we know in the past Guadalupe fur seals were one of the most common ones we see archaeologically. And then we pushed it back more recently using uh, geochemical techniques, especially something called collagen fingerprinting, where we show that, well, wait, you know, back 10, 11,000 years ago, there actually were more elephant seals. So then the question becomes, well, are we returning to like a Pleistocene state, you know, really what it was like before there were a lot of people hunting them. So, you know, archaeology is great for giving context on what a recovery looks like. And when we're trying to restore an ecosystem, we need to have perspectives on, on what we're trying to, to restore that to. And archaeology can certainly guide us in that direction. The pinniped example is one. Um, we've done a lot of work with abalones, collaborative with my colleague Todd Bragey at San Diego State, and then John Erlinson, my former advisor, looking at um, red abalones and black abalones, and which were really common, really popular on restaurant menus, you know, 50, 100 years ago, and then now... Um, you know, are being farmed, but you can hardly see them. Well, there, there is starting to be a recovery in those too, but we've used archaeology to understand, you know, where might be the best spots to look for restoration based on climate conditions and, and past human harvest. We've done it with finfish too and looked at rockfish and the sort of red snapper fishery in the area. We're starting a project on sharks right now, and so it's really the sky's kind of the limit. There's all sorts of things that can be done. And that's just within the marine realm. There's even, you know, interesting stuff looking in the terrestrial area too. Yeah, that's so fascinating. I'm sure the shark data will be interesting. And because shark bones are a bit different because they're more cartilaginous, correct? They are, yeah. So sharks are, are you know, mostly cartilaginous. They have um, what are called vertebral centra. They're little vertebrae, which are ossified and then teeth, of course. And then they also have something called dermal denticles, which are these little like parts of their, their, their scales and skin are ossified as well. Some of them get little spines too, stingrays, of course. And then there's something called the spiny dogfish, a little shark that has this big fin ray spine and those all those get preserved in the archaeological record. And then- Yeah, I was gonna you know, ask, they, so they, they preserve just as well. Oh yeah. Well, okay. maybe not just as well, yeah. but yeah, they preserve, they preserve very well. Uh, and then, you know, then you get them and you can add them up and calculate the abundance and look at the abundance through time. And then, you know, add to that a whole bunch of geochemical techniques, isotopes that can look at their feeding strategies and food webs, genetics that can look at their population structure and help identify them 
proteomics or collagen fingerprinting, you know, the sky's kind of the limit. And it's like almost every year we have advances in these analytical techniques that help us refine our questions and, and really refine our data presentation. Yeah, I, I had the opportunity before COVID hit to take zoo archaeology with uh, Professor McClure in person. And I'm so glad because like literally we ended up going into lockdown the week before our final. So I was so happy that I got to, you know, you know, palpate the bones in person. It's such a different experience. Oh, wait, I have to sneeze. Bless you. <laughs> um, oh, cut that one out. She's, she's so fascinating. You said you, you worked with her as well. Yeah, so well, so I worked a lot with Doug Kennett um, okay. when I was an undergrad, and then and then actually Doug taught for a while at Oregon when I was finishing up. He was on my oh team yeah, team. they they were yeah they were at Oregon around that time yeah yeah. So I, I had Doug, so Doug was on, yeah Doug was on my committee, and of course he worked on the Channel Islands for his dissertation. So I've always been pretty close to Doug, um, and then Sarah I've known for for almost just as long. She's fantastic, and. They're both having both of them back at UCSB, I think, is a great asset for the program for students there. And, and Sarah's a, a world class zooarchaeologist. And, you know, she's someone who's doing some really fantastic research in the Mediterranean, looking at the interface of domestication and environmental mm -hmm. change and applying isotopes and other other techniques to that, too. So, yeah, we a, had her on the I had her on the podcast maybe, yeah, three, three weeks ago. Yeah. And I, I need to get I need to get Doug on. They're in New Zealand right now. So it's it's. The, t the time a hard. we were like okay we like had it all figured out and then we ended up having to reschedule it like three times because of the time difference but yeah, yeah they're they're wonderful and um yeah the UCSB department is very very lucky to have them especially because Doug is opening a stable isotope lab which is something that UCSB I think has needed for a while yeah uh, to further like you were saying further what students are able to do there yeah it'll be great so we're going to switch gears a little bit. Um, yeah. So when did you start working at the Smithsonian? Um, I started back in 2008. So I was, I've been here for about 12, well, almost 13 years, actually. Um, so 2008, I started working here. Um, before that, I taught for four years uh, in Dallas, Texas at Southern Methodist University. I was a member of the Department of Anthropology there. Um, I went there right out of finishing Oregon. And so what does your job on the daily entail as a curator of North American archaeology? I'm, I'm very curious. <laughs> um, it's, you know, it's, I, in, in a lot of ways, I think I have one of the best jobs in the world. I, um, the Smithsonian's a remarkable place. The Natural History Museum's a remarkable place. And it's like a, it's a really dynamic museum. First of all, we're huge. You know, our collections span across seven departments. There's 145 million natural history and cultural objects that are in our care. It's the largest natural history collection in the world. Of those 145 million, about 3 million of them are, are anthropological. Um, and, and, you know, although that sounds like a small percentage of the overall number, our artifacts are really complicated. They're really complex. And we have, you know, everything from baskets to woven blankets to projectile points to oyster shells in our collections. Um, so it's it's kind of been a remarkable place because we have this fantastic collection and then we have this world-class group of scientists somewhere it fluctuates but somewhere you know almost around 200 different natural history and cultural scientists in our building and then a wealth of postdocs undergraduate student interns and visitors and high school students who come in and out 
Um, and all of that, um, you know, makes for a really rich intellectual climate. And so in that sense, we're, we're a little bit different than most museums just because we're so big, we're huge. And we function in a lot of ways. It feels like you're a kind of a mini little university. Um, we have an academic model that's very similar to that. So, you know, I've always been really, really happy to work there because of that, that being able to do the things I did at a university, but in a museum context. And so you were asking, you wanted to know about my day to day. Yeah. You know? So um, every day is different. And um, so my, my, my responsibilities, why don't I tell you this by telling you what my duties are. So it's kind of funny. I'm curator of North American archaeology. But really, my actual title, like in the federal government, because I'm a federal employee, is research anthropologist. And so we're evaluated on four different things, kind of like a university faculty member, except we don't have teaching. And so my, my biggest product that I'm evaluated on is my research. And I have to publish, you know, a certain number of papers every year. And then I'm evaluated on them every year. And then every five years, we do this really detailed internal and external review. And then my other responsibilities are collections. So there's a portion of the collection that I care for. And my department, we happen to do it mostly by geography. So I'm Western North America, and then I've got a chunk of the Eastern U.S. coast as well. Um, and then I also curate um, the archaeobiology collections, the faunal collections for the Americas. I used to split that with Mindy Zeter before she retired. She was old world archaeologist. Trying to get her on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, Mindy's phenomenal and a big mentor of Sarah's because Sarah yes. McClure, of course, you know, grew up in the D.C. area and then was an intern starting as a high school student with Mindy Zeter in our lab. Yeah. So yeah, I maintained that lab. Sarah came out of as the archaeobiology lab, which is part of our, our research program or group. So collections, and then I have, you know, museum service, and, um, and then education and outreach as well. I have no formal teaching duties, but I do teach for George Washington University every other year, a combined kind of undergraduate graduate course. I work with a lot of students, uh, mostly graduate students. I have postdocs that come through for a year or two years. Um, I have PhD committees that I sit on, a couple, one or two that I've co-chaired. Um, and then, you know, lots of undergrads that come in and out of the museum. So a normal day, we're not all trapped in our living rooms like the COVID times. Um, you know, I could be in the museum working on collections, or I could be trying to write a paper, or in exhibits meeting, or maybe teaching a class, depending on what was happening that day. Um, I was chair of our department for four years, which is a kind of an eye-opening experience. I don't, I don't really hope to do it again, but you know, See the other that, side, the political side. <laughs> it is, you know, and during that time, we're a, we're a federal institution or a branch mm -hmm. of the U.S. government, and so we were hosting, you know, embassy visits all the time, uh, foreign delegations that wanted to come in and look at the collections, or or it might have been a group of tribal leaders for a repatriation or a, a cultural visit. So it's a really diverse job, and um, there I can say truly say no day is the same as the one before. Um, That's then, wonderful. You know, we've been at home since March. Our museum's totally closed. Um, we're lucky we're able to work, but we've been planning exhibits and doing lots of outreach online and then, and then of course, writing papers and trying to do the work we can. Yeah. Do you have, um, maybe not a, a specific artifact, but do you have like a, a favorite thing that you've seen in the Smithsonian that just kind of like blew your mind? Because I know when I was walking around, uh, I had the opportunity to go there maybe four years ago, which I had, was on like a, a, like a group trip and I had like two hours. So I barely got to see any of the natural history museum, 
went into the uh, the airspace exhibit for like a tiny bit. I, it was cool. I need to go back. But yeah. yeah, do you have a favorite exhibit or even building? Um, so I mean, we're huge. You know, like natural history is one of nineteen yeah. museums that are in the Smithsonian. I you know, I, natural history is my favorite museum. Um, I you know, I probably be. You know, somebody be upset with me if I said it wasn't, <laughs> yeah. but it really is. I love our zoo. Um, I have a lot of close colleagues I've collaborated with who work at the Smithsonian Zoo that's in DC. And then there's a conservation facility out in Front Royal, Virginia. Um, we have research institutions too. So we have the what's called the Smithsonian Environmental Research Center that's out in Annapolis. I've been doing archaeology on the Chesapeake Bay for about 10 years. And I work a lot with their scientists and it's, that's a great facility too. So there's so many areas, it's hard to say what's my favorite, but um, I, you know, I really love, love our museum. Um, I love the portrait gallery. The Hirshhorn is our modern art museum and they're an amazing group over there. And then as far as collections, it's really hard to say like what my favorite object in our collection is, but we've got lots of them, you know, everything from these chocolate pots that were found in Chaco Canyon and were, you know, ritual vessels that held cacao. And um, we've got, you know, made the Rogan plates, which are these amazing Southeastern mound dweller uh, copper plates that are in these ornate figures. One's called the Birdman. Um, so it's really, I mean, you name it, we've got it in our collection. I tend to be drawn to those things that maybe aren't the prettiest to look at, but they tell just a remarkable story. And so I'll give you one anecdote of those. And that's one of my favorite objects in our anthropology collections is, was actually found in Baja, California. And so one day I was just kind of pulling opening drawers and we have our facility where we keep most of our anthropology collections mm -hmm. is in Suitland, Maryland, about 20 minutes outside of DC. And it's like, there's five of these things we call pods and each one is the footprint of a football field and it's three stories tall and you can just imagine shelf after shelf after shelf. And one day I was doing some work in our California collections and I looked at the row over and it said Baja California and I thought, oh, you know, let me, I'm just going to open up some of these and see what's in here. And I remember that I opened it up and there was some basketry and some cool stuff and then I saw this harpoon head. It looked like an ivory harpoon head. And so I was like, well, well, this is cool. And it had a little tag in it that said, you know, found in Scammon's Lagoon, Baja, California. And Scammon's Lagoon was a really famous place for the fur trade, a lot of whale hunting going on in that area. And I look at the object and on the artifact, it's, it's a clear classic old whaling culture from Alaska. So older, uh, you know, harpoon style, ivory head with a little slot where the blade would go in. And on it, written in pencil, it says, found in a California gray whale. And sure enough, this is an object where somebody was down there and found this, you know, harpoon head lodged in a whale that they were butchering. butchering. I think it was like 1892 or something that they, I don't know the exact years off, but somewhere right there at the end of the, the 19th century. Um, and then found out one of my colleagues, Stephen Loring, who works up in the Alaska, you know, area um, had also been interested in. And so here's sitting in our collection, here's sort of a story embedded in this one small artifact of the roots of, of, of globalization. You know, it's the whale that got away. Somebody probably harpooned that thing up in Alaska. The whale survives decades, who knows how long ever, ever later, some fur trade or whalers, you know, uh, uh, hunt that and then it ends up in a Smithsonian collection so there and we're just full of objects like that that tell these amazing stories and then the other thing that makes them even more amazing and something that I take very seriously is 
and I mentioned I'm a federal employee. So, you know, I'm employed by the U.S. government. I'm a public employee, the Smithsonian. And one of the things we all take pride in is owned by the American public. You know, and we can't, we hold these collections in trust to the American people. And we really take great pride then in caring for those things and then trying to get those stories out and, and show people why they're important. Well, thank you so much for explaining that. It's, sounds like you have a very fascinating job that keeps you very interested. And, you know, I hope to be able to go back to the Smithsonian again soon and enjoy the collections even further. I think, especially like once you hear from someone, it, I'm sure I'll have a whole new appreciation when I go back. Uh, so thank you. Thank you for coming on the podcast today. Hey, well, thanks for having me and come visit anytime. We're always happy to have a fellow gaucho uh, come see us here in, in the DC area.